It's the 3rd of May in the year of our salvation, 2008. It is the Feast of Saints Philip and James in the new post-conciliar calendar. And you are back once again with Father Z. Today we welcome back as our guest, and I really do mean welcome back, the ancient Christian writer, the brilliant and snarky Tertullian. Last year, I did uh, did a piece on Tertullian, and I pulled out of the old podcast those recordings, and I'm integrating them into this new one. So I really do need welcome back. A uh, selection of one of Tertullian's works is used in today's office for readings for the pieces of the apostles, Philip and James. Also, we will hear from Father George Rutler, writing in First Things, a review of Archbishop Piero Marini's useful little book, Challenging Reform. Then we will hear some of Marini's book as well. It is very instructive. We welcome to our podcast today Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus, otherwise known as Tertullian. He was from Carthage in North Africa, and he lived and died somewhere around 200 AD. We just don't know much about his life or the, the precise details and his dates. What comes down to us is a little bit scanty, and it comes from personal notes in his work and some other things that other people mention, but we really haven't been able to figure out precisely uh, what his dates were. Tertullian was obviously a highly educated man, probably a lawyer, and he came more than likely from a, a family that was military. His father was probably an officer in the legions, and so in all of his works there's a lot of military language and a lot of legal language. As a matter of fact, uh, many of his arguments are framed in legal or juridical terms. He uses those patterns a great deal. Now when he was young, he was, uh, shall we say, uh, just as wild as everybody else in North Africa, but then one day he saw Christians being executed for the enjoyment of spectators, and he was struck with the courage at with the at with which these you know very uh, uneducated people and slaves and so forth faced this horrible death that they were about to endure and moved by this he became a christian himself and then he turned his ta his formidable talents into writing in defense of the Christians and defense of Christianity. As a matter of fact, this was so early in the experience of the, the Church of North Africa that Tertullian is very often uh, said to be, and with, with real good reason, the first Christian writer in Latin. Uh, the, perhaps maybe Minutius Felix was also, uh, you know, perhaps maybe the first, but Tertullian is often called the first Christian to write in Latin, and so he's the father of Latin uh, Christian literature, as it were. And his writing style is incredibly pungent and biting. He was a brilliant writer, and his Latin is actually quite difficult. You know, when you read Augustine or some of the others, well, their Latin kind of goes around, you know, right along because they're using the Sermo 
humilis, a humble style, a, a style that's very readily, readily uh, acceptable by the listener. But Tertullian, who was always writing all of his, whose works come out of a particular occasion to write, he's not a systematic writer, he's always reacting to something. He writes uh, convoluted uh, works that are very sarcastic and biting sometimes, and his Latin is difficult, and so you really have to work when you read Tertullian. And because of the difficulty of his Latin, and because of his style, very terse, very ironic, ironic uh, copyists had a terrible time uh, copying him, because sometimes the copyists, their Latin wasn't as good as Tertullian, and so they would, as they would copy, sometimes they'd, you know, take it upon themselves to correct what they thought were errors and so forth, and so the manuscript tradition for Tertullian is very, very difficult. Another reason why the manuscripts are difficult for Tertullian is because later in his life, as he became more and more rigorous and more and more ascetical, he joined a, a sect called the Montanists. You see, he strayed away from unity with the larger church because of what he was seeing. He was, he was, Tertullian just couldn't accept compromise. And uh, he saw terrible difficulties in the church of his day. And so he went off, he split off into this group called Montanists. And then eventually there, there was a smaller group even called you know, Tertullianists. And there were even Tertullianists in Augustine's day. And he talks about them. There was this little group of Tertullianists. And eventually they had dwindled to such small numbers that they basically were reconciled with the larger church. And they handed over their their basilica, and they became uh, Catholics with the rest of them. But these Montanists were almost like Pentecostalists, and uh, they had maybe some difficulties about, uh, some of them at least, had difficulties about the, the, the Godhead, about the persons of the Trinity. Now, speaking of Trinity, as a matter of fact, Tertullian was the one who gave us many uh, terms which we use today in Latin. He was the first one to use the term Trinitas uh, for uh, the three persons in, in one God. And he also uh, probably was the one who introduced the word sacramentum, these neologisms, as they're called, they were new words. You see, in those days, they were still trying to figure out a technical vocabulary, how to express these these concepts. In Latin, they just didn't have the right words uh, for them. So they had to either adapt existing words and, and give them new meanings, which would mean that if, you know, a couple hundred early, years earlier, if Cicero had read some of the Christian Latin, he'd be scratching his head, you know, thinking, what the, what the heck are they talking about? Or there was terminology coming in from Greek, and so they had to find equivalents for the Greek terms. Well, sacramentum is a word that was adapted from military language. It was like the, the oath that soldiers had to swear. And this eventually came to mean a number of things in Christian Latin, but it very often substituted for the Greek word mysterion, or mystery. As a matter of fact, in liturgical Latin today, the word mysterium, or mystery, and sacramentum, uh, very often in our prayers, is virtually interchangeable. But we have the word sacramentum in Christian Latin probably because of Tertullian. Now today in the Office of Readings for the Feast of Saints Philip and James, 
in the second reading, we have a selection from Tertullian's work De Prescriptione Hereticorum. That word prescriptione, it's prescriptio, or in classical Latin it would be prescriptio, just in case you're wondering about the spelling. That's P-R-A-E and not P-R-E, okay? Prescriptio. And it's a book about heresy. It's about how to think about heresy and how to argue with heretics and uh, what kind of arguments to avoid when dealing with heretics. And so how should we respond to them? Because there was terrible problems in those days. So at this point, uh, dealing with this dispute, you know, he approaches it like a lawyer. And he even comes up with uh, very legal or juridical uh, approaches to them. Now, just the very uh, name of the of the work, prescriptio, right? De prescriptione hereticorum. Now, a prescriptio in Roman law was a way to rule absolutely, just have a case automatically dismissed uh, from from court, from any legal proceeding. And it was a way, for example, of of getting an injunction against a heretic, as it were, from trespassing on Holy Scripture, which he claimed was the sole property of Christians. Why? Because Christians had it longer. So this prescriptio was a procedure based on length of possession. It's almost like this old adage that we have is that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And because Christians possess scripture, that means that heretics have absolutely no right to use it. And therefore, we should never accept any argument from any heretic when he tries to use scripture, because they have no right to use it. Only Christians are able to to use it. Now in De Prescriptione Hereticorum, Tertullian tries also to help us identify who a heretic is and how to identify one in the wild, as it were. And he argues that heresy has particular characteristics that we should be able to identify. And as you listen, here I'll give it to you, and listen if you think, tell me if you think that these are applicable even today. Tertullian would say that heresy, uh, like persecution, tests man's faith. And so, for example, if you, if you are caused you know, to doubt something and you're really tried by it, well, then maybe what you've encountered is a heresy and the person who said it was a heretic. He also warns that, that heresy was predicted by Christ and also condemned by St. Paul who warned about uh, different kinds of philosophies and, and vanities and so forth. He also said that uh, heresy is characterized by too much curiosity. If someone is like digging too much with too many like ridiculous questions and just not ever happy with an answer, well, then maybe what you're doing is dealing with a heretic. A heretic, then, is always trying to put into doubt what are called the regula fidei. The regula fidei are like the, the, is the rule of faith, those basic doctrines which every Christian really uh, just accepts and believes because they, are, because they are true and the entire Christian community believes them always and everywhere. So if you hear someone calling into doubt 
the regula fide, or what we would call almost today dogmas of the faith, well then you are probably dealing with a heretic. Now in contrast to the heretics, Christians know that Christ received the truth and taught the truth and transmitted it to, to his apostles, and the apostles in turn handed, on, handed it on to churches, which they themselves founded, and then those other churches gave birth to other churches, and they're all apostolic churches, and therefore they can possess this truth. And anyone outside that chain that goes from the Father to Christ to the apostles to the churches to the churches founded by the churches, nobody outside that, shall we say, uh, system, that community, that chain, can possess the truth. And how do we identify this, and how do we know that this is right? Well, Tertullian argues that Jesus chose 12 disciples to be the teacher of mankind, and after his resurrection, he ordered the apostles to go and teach all men to be baptized. And then they founded churches, first in Judea and then the whole world, and then from those churches they founded other churches, you see. And this is precisely the same uh, chain of events that we will hear from in this reading, this little selection from the second reading of the Office of Readings today from De Prescriptione Hereticorum. And instead of going on and explaining more and more about this, let's just listen to Tertullian's words and we can get back to Tertullian after the reading. Extractatu Tertulliani Presbyteri, de prescriptione hereticorum. Christus Jesus Dominus Noster, quid esset, quid fuisset, quam patris voluntatem administraret, quid homini agendum determinaret, quam diu interis agebat, ipse pronunciabat sive popolo palam, sive discentibus seorsum, Exquibus duodecim precipuos latri suo allegerat, destinatos nationibus magistros. Iteque, uno eorum decusso, relicos undecim degrediens ad patrem post resurrectionem iusit ire et docere nationes. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself declared what he was, what he had been, how he was carrying out his Father's will, what obligations he demanded of men. This he did during his earthly life, either publicly to the crowds or privately to his disciples. Twelve of these he picked out to be his special companions, appointed to teach the nations. One of them fell from his place. The remaining eleven were commanded by Christ 
as he was leaving the earth to return to the Father after his resurrection, to go and teach the nations, and to baptize them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The apostles cast lots, and added Matthias to their number, in place of Judas, as the twelfth apostle. The authority for this action is to be found in a prophetic psalm of David. After receiving the power of the Holy Spirit which had been promised to them, so that they could work miracles and proclaim the truth, they first bore witness to their faith in Jesus Christ, and established churches throughout Judea. They then went out into the whole world and proclaimed to the nations the same doctrinal faith. They set up churches in every city. Other churches received from them a living transplant of faith and the seed of doctrine, and through this daily process of transplanting they became churches. They therefore qualify as apostolic churches by being the offspring of churches that are apostolic. Every family has to be traced back to its origins. That is why we can say that all these great churches constitute that one original church of the apostles, for it is from them that they all come. They are all primitive, all apostolic, because they are all one. They bear witness to this unity by the peace in which they all live, the brotherhood which is their name, the fellowship to which they are pledged. The principle on which these associations are based is common tradition, by which they share the same sacramental bond. The only way in which we can prove what the apostles taught, that is to say what Christ revealed to them, is through those same churches. They were founded by the apostles themselves, who first preached to them by what is called the living voice, and later by means of letters. The Lord had said clearly in former times, I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot endure them now. But he went on to say, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into the whole truth. Thus Christ shows us that the apostles had full knowledge of the truth, for he had promised that they would receive the whole truth through the Spirit of truth. His promise was certainly fulfilled, since the acts of the apostles prove that the Holy Spirit came down on them. Multa habeo adhuc loquivobis sed non potestis modo ea sustinere, tamen adiciens, cum venerit ille spiritus veritatis, ipse vos deducet in omnem veritatem, ostendit illos nihil ignorase, quos omnem veritatem consecuturos per spiritum veritatis repromiserat, et udique implevit repromissum probantibus actis apostolorum decensum spiritus sancti.
That was from Tertullian's work De Prescriptione Hereticorum, using very legal and juridical arguments. He is telling us how to deal with heretics, if we have to deal with them at all. It kind of reminds me of that uh, book in the American political sphere not too long ago, How to Deal with a Liberal if You Really Have to. Well, this is sort of uh, Tertullian's approach. First of all, you have to identify them. Well, this is a heretic. And then how to stop heretics dead in their tracks by not letting them use scripture because of this legal argument that they can't argue that they possess it. It's not their text and scripture isn't their text therefore they can't use it. We can use it because it's our possession. We've had it longer and that's the prescriptio. It gets them an, an injunction shall we say. It's like a no trespassing thing. And uh, Tertullian spins out his argument that Christ chose the disciples, his 12 apostles. He gave them a command to teach all nations. They founded churches. The churches founded other churches. And all these churches are therefore apostolic. And since, and here's the, like the philosophical dimension of it. Since every, since the nature of every object is determined by its origin, therefore Every church is apostolic so long as they maintain their unity with all of the apostolic churches. And so anything that splits off from that can't be argued to be apostolic anymore. Well, it's with great irony that eventually Tertullian himself uh, broke with the Catholic Church. And although his writings are were fantastically useful and all the early fathers of the church read him, Jerome and Augustine, all of them read Tertullian. Uh, it's very interesting that he really doesn't qualify to be like one of the the doctors of the church or he wasn't uh, able to be you know called saint Tertullian or anything because he was he basically split off. He became schismatic himself. Now just before we leave De Prescriptione Hereticorum, you might be interested to know that there are some kind of famous things in this book. As a matter of fact, uh, the works of Tertullian uh, have wonderful little phrases that have uh, come down through history as famous little phrases used by all sorts of people. One of them is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Or sometimes it's called, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? It's very often, it, this phrase is often invoked as uh, showing a contrast between uh, the way worldly philosophy is and the teaching of the church. As if, you know, faith and reason don't have anything to do with each other. And uh, this phrase, however, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, is very often misquoted. And uh, what Tertullian is really doing is he's pointing out that uh, the, the philosophical methodology, the way that questions are approached, don't necessarily have anything to do with the authority of Scripture or how to use Scripture in teaching. Now, be that what it, be that as it may, um, there's a little quote uh, that we should look at in chapter 7. And, uh, well, let's just read it. Whence spring those fables and endless genealogies and unprofitable questions and words which spread like a cancer? From all these, when the apostle would restrain us, he expressly names philosophy as that which he would have us be on our guard against. Writing to the Colossians, he says, 
See that no one beguile you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and contrary to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He had been at Athens and had in his interviews with its philosophers become acquainted with that human wisdom which pretends to know the truth whilst it only corrupts it and is itself divided in its own manifold heresies by the variety of its mutually repugnant sects. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. Away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of stoic, platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief. Say what you want about Tertullian and his ideas, he is never, never boring. Today we're welcoming to the podcast the erudite and highly engaging Father George Rutler, who penned a review of the book A Challenging Reform, Realizing the Vision of the Liturgical Renewal, which came out under the name of Archbishop Piero Marini. Though, especially because no Italian edition exists, I'm pretty sure that Marini didn't write this book. It exists only in English, and I think it was probably written by its editors. But uh, let's hear what Father Rutler has to say in First Things. This is a marvelous little review. The Spirit of Vatican II by George W. Rutler First Things, March 2008, a review of A Challenging Reform, Realizing the Vision of the Liturgical Renewal, 1963-1975, by Piero Marini. To young people today, Vatican II reposes in a haze with Nicaea II and Lateran II. Their guileless ignorance at least frees them from the animus of some aging liturgists who thought that the Second Vatican Council defined a whole new anthropological stage in the history of man. The prolix optimism of many interpreters of that council has now taken on a patina, not that of fine bronze, but more like the discoloration of a Bauhaus building. 
reflective minds, ever grateful for the more important contributions of Vatican II, have had to reconcile a declaration on the 25th anniversary of Sacrosanctum Concilium that the vast majority of the faithful enthusiastically have welcomed liturgical changes with subsequent pontifical acts of reparation for liturgical confusion. In his new book, A Challenging Reform, Archbishop Piero Marini has done historians a service in tracing the development of the modern liturgy. The result is a highly revealing account of the intentions of prominent players, and the author shows a genuine innocence in his assumption that readers will share his preference for theory over practice. His polemical tone will agitate those whom Marini calls, quote, reactionaries, close quote, to think that their misgivings about the events of 1963 to 1975 were not totally hallucinatory. Marini worked in the Secretariat of the Concilium ad Exequendam Constitutionem de Sacra Liturgia, with Annibale Bunini, who started as a modest bureaucrat and gradually shaped the advisory committee into a rival of, and eventually a replacement of, the Congregation for Rites. The Concilium was suppressed in a later period of the Pauline Pontificate, which, Marini implies, was not as good as the Pontificate of John Twenty-Third. The talented author began as secretary to the hero of his narrative as a young priest, but, like a son of Noah, he never mentions that Bunini eventually was relieved of his curial post and went on to write what may be the definitive history of Catholicism in Iran. A more disinterested remembrancer of those heady days would not have had such access to the intricate workings of the Concilium, and this thin, even epistemologically anorexic book will long be of interest to ecclesiologists as they study its awkward ballet of resentments and vindications of the sort commonly found in youthful diaries that were not burned in maturity. There are no greys in the book. Champions like Lercaro, Giobbe, and Laraone were, quote, brilliant and, quote, charismatic and, quote, progressive while anonymous members of the Congregation for Rights were, quote, anchored in the past, and often, quote, overplayed their hand. Bunini was indefatigable in his work, and followed the path of his namesake Hannibal crossing the Alps, quote, we will either find a way or make one, close quote, and, quote, progressives, promoted in ineffable, quote, spirit of the council, and, quote, knew that the path would not be easy. Their project was bold, quote, the liturgy inspired by the council needed to leave behind the Tridentine forms in order to embrace the genuine expression of the faith of the whole church, close quote. This involved a malleable treatment of tradition, by which reform became rupture, and development meant invention, with little regard for the sensibilities of others, including the Eastern churches. Not disdaining the machinations of politics, the Concilium even assumed a sum of the work of what is now the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, prescinding from the claim that the liturgists did their preparatory work, quote, 
patiently and humbly since October 1963 with the Pope's support, close quote, in order to be, quote, more pastoral, Marini fuels the suspicions of conspiracy theorists by admitting, quote, unlike the reform after Trent, close quote, the liturgical reform after Vatican II, quote, was all the greater because it also dealt with doctrine, close quote. On May 24, 1964, the Pope instituted, quote, an innovation in the administrative structure of the Curia, close quote, when he instructed the Congregation for Rights to grant juridical approval to the changes proposed by the Concilium. Marini is not a slave to the principle of non-contradiction. The Concilium was, quote, to reflect the hopes and needs of local churches throughout the world, close quote, but Two sentences later, Holy Mother Church becomes something of a nanny. Quote, in order to renew the liturgy, it was not enough to issue new directives. It was also necessary to change the attitudes of both the clergy and the lay faithful to enable them to grasp the purpose of the reform. Close quote. In case the people thought something was being done to them instead of for them, various means of social communication would be required, quote, in preparing the faithful to welcome the reform, close quote. The result was implemented on March 7, 1965, with the instruction Inter Ecumenici. Busy hands then set to work in their laboratory to introduce the, quote, broad innovations that the author says were desired by the council. Some of these matched propositions of the 1786 Synod of Pistoia that Pius VI condemned for its Jansenism. These included vernacularism, elimination of side altars, didactic ceremonial, and astringency of symbols. The versus populum posture of the celebrant was taken for granted in the romantic archaeologism that Pius XII warned against in Mediator Dei. Translation of the lectionary gradually expanded to a practical neglect of Latin. Regrettably, the author seems to take an unedifying satisfaction in how the Congregation for Rights was, quote, marginalized and, quote, now had to submit to the authority of the Concilium and accept its reform unconditionally, close quote. To resolve questions between plenary meetings, seven bishops of, quote, Concilium Presidentiae were elected. They were, quote, among the most open-minded and supportive of the Concilium's role. None of them belonged to the Roman Curia, close quote. In fact, there seem to have been few, if any, among the reformers who had been pastors, prelacy was not lost in the move toward, quote, noble simplicity. Eventually, the author himself was made a titular archbishop while remaining master of pontifical liturgical celebrations, and he fulfilled his duties diligently, but it was a clerical arrangement in tension with the council's description in Christus Dominus of a pastoral and evangelical episcopacy. In 1969, the Apostolic Constitution, Sacra Rituum Congregatio, divided the Congregation for Rites into a Congregation for Divine Worship and a Congregation for the Causes of Saints, and, quote, although Paul VI 
founded the Congregation for Divine Worship, the idea was conceived and carried out by Bunini. He was undoubtedly responsible for the appointment of the gentle, collaborative Cardinal Benogut. This halcyon arrangement ended in 1974 with the formation of a Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, which was, quote, probably one of the first signs of a tendency to return to a preconciliar mindset that has for years now characterized the curious approach. As more and more time passes since the Second Vatican Council, an event charged with such hope and desire for renewal, its distinctive contributions seem to be increasingly questioned. These events were quote, witnesses to the prophetic vision as well as the limitations of Paul VI's pontificate. Considerable erudition was at work in those years, but too often its populism overruled the people. It was like Le Corbusier sketching a new metallic Paris. Marini complains about, quote, a certain nostalgia for the old rites, close quote. In doing so, he contradicts Pope Benedict's distinction between rites and uses, and he also fails to explain why nostalgia for the 1560s is inferior to nostalgia for the 1960s, except for the dentistry. The editors of Marini's A Challenging Reform explain that their aim is to, quote, keep alive the, quote, vision of the concilium but their diction is a voice in a bunker, embittered by the failure of people to be grateful. If an organism is truly healthy, it does not need a life support system. Before he became Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger said plainly, quote, We abandoned the organic living process of growth and development over the centuries and replaced it as in a manufacturing process with a process, with a fabrication, a banal, on-the-spot product. Quote. In consequence, the fragile construction must be pumped up by multiple Gnostic docetic innovations, such as dancing, referred to in a prescriptive text as, quote, pious undulations, close quote, Hula dancers at the beatification of Father Damien in 1995 hardly gave a sense of verisimilitude in Brussels. The papal flabella and burning flax, having been eliminated as detritus of imperial Rome, it was even more anachronistic to trumpet the great jubilee in modern Rome with costumed men affecting familiarity with the art of blowing elephant tusks. For all its proponents' goodness of intention, this kind of thing confuses universality with internationalism, treats the awesome as picturesque, suburbanizes the city of God, and patronizes nations and races. Explaining the ceremonial invented for the papal visit to the people of Mexico in 2002, Marini spoke of, quote, respect for the indigenous, close quote and told an interviewer, quote, Just as we use holy water, for which for us recalls the waters of baptism, the forgiveness of sin, and the resurrection, so for them this element of smoke can have a sense of liberation and forgiveness, close quote. 
acts deracinated from the divine drama risk becoming the sort of baroque theater louis bouillet disdained in the operatics of an earlier century as ratzinger said quote, it is a sure sign that the essence of liturgy has totally disappeared and been replaced by a kind of religious entertainment close quote. cult becomes cabaret and applause usurps amen Perhaps greater contact with pastoral reality would have anticipated the chaos that comes when ardent but misbegotten theories are imposed on the people of God who do not regularly read notitiae. The blithe obliviousness of many experts to damage all around them is nonetheless breathtaking. At times, in various lands, it is like watching a venerable procession of Alcuin, Evo of Chartres, Geranger, Fortescue and Jungmann, and finding, at the end, Inspector Clouseau. Those entrusted with so great a project as the Second Vatican Council would have done better had they not felt obliged to act with such haste. One problem in the frantic rush for deadlines was the inconvenience of the Italian postal system. There will never be another ecumenical council without email. Now, in his review, Father Rutler made some very good points about the conflict of the Congregation for Rights and the Concilium. And uh, now, don't confuse the words concilium and concilium. When you see them written, they're just one letter different, but they're very different concepts. Concilium with an S is that committee, that council set up by the concilium, the council, to implement the re liturgical reforms. So that's the concilium with an S. The concilium, concilium, refers to the council, the Second Vatican Council, and then later on also to a famous publication. So always keep your eye open for the S and the C. And uh, now to illustrate uh, Father Rutler's points from that great review, I'm going to read for you a section of the book uh, under Marini's name. Uh, this book is pretty systematically organized. Uh, you can follow it very well. Uh, it goes through chronologically. And it also reflects, I think, probably the well-organized Italian way of thinking. Uh, they like to work in outlines and have conclusions and summaries and so forth. So it's, it's uh, uh, probably very much done in conjunction with Marini. I just don't think he wrote it. Uh, in any event, at the end of each section, there is a helpful summarizing conclusion. And we're going to hear now the conclusion for the section called The Instruction Inter Ecumenici, A Decisive Turning Point. And uh, this co connection will give you a sense of the issues, the, the players, and the tone of the book, along with the preference of the author. Now, here are some things to listen for as we go ahead. First, tune your ears to the vocabulary used to describe the Congregation of Rites and also the Concilium. Listen also uh, about what the battle over the vernacular was really about. Listen to the discussion of the power and the role of bishops' conferences. Uh, keep your ears also tuned for the point that the Concilium 
took to itself the role of official and authentic interpreter of the Constitution on the liturgy. So Bunini and now Marini, after him, probably today, because of that close association that they had and that, that work that Marina did in those formative years of his life, uh, they had in mind that they were the authentic interpreters. That they really knew better than anybody else what the council meant. Never mind what the document says. We're also going to talk about, oh, let's all those discussions that we had about it beforehand. You see, they're privy to this this inside knowledge see the secret almost secret knowledge this is why i think rutler talks about that point of gnosticism uh, in his review it's really a very very telling point they have secret knowledge that helps them see more clearly than everybody else uh, in a recent interview in l'osservatore romano archbishop marini kept referring to the mass as the council wanted not as the concilium as the second vatican council actually mandated it but as the concilium actually created it you see that's what the council really wanted and marini does so probably as a point of resistance to what pope benedict's vision of the liturgy is it's a real contrast and that was in opposition to summorum pontificum you see but this is where that mindset comes from uh, it comes from the time of Archbishop Marini working in the office of the Secretariat of the Concilium, and the Concilium feeling itself to be the authentic interpreters of all these things. Uh, finally, listen also to how the congregation was simply relegated to rubber stamp what the Concilium did, and how they really didn't have a right to interject anything, but they probably were going to anyway, and how the concilium got around the congregation by getting going to Paul VI uh, for approval for things before even giving them to the congregation to look at or for it to be promulgated. It's really, really fascinating. Now, I'm sure you're going to find your own interesting points for listening, but let's hear now what uh, the book A Challenging Reform has to say in that concluding section about the decree, the, the very, very interesting inter ecumenici. The May resolution of the controversy between the Congregation for Rights and the Concilium was it achieved more because of the weariness of the contending sides than because of an agreement on a formula of compromise. Each side maintained that it should direct the conciliary liturgical reform. Therefore, it was quite predictable that tensions would flare up again at the first opportunity. This indeed happened with the publication of the instruction Inter Ecumenici which had been prepared by the Concilium after authorization from the Secretariat of State. After going through several drafts, the text was approved in its substance by the June plenary session and then presented to the Pope for final approval. The text was then passed on to the Congregation for Rites. The approval of this document occasioned the definitive solution concerning the nature of the Congregation for Rites' authority in the implementation of the reform. All the difficulties in relations between the Concilium and the Congregation for Rights came immediately to the surface. According to the Congregation for Rights, the Concilium's version of the instruction, Articles 55 and 59, was too broad in its interpretation of the Constitutions favoring the use of the vernacular in the Mass and the Sacraments, 
going well beyond the limits laid down by the conciliar document. For the Mass, the Congregation for Rites proposed to limit the use of the vernacular to the readings and the prayers of the faithful. As for the sacraments, it recommended that no innovation be made in the practice prior to the Council. It was clear that the position of the Congregation for Rites was fairly extreme. In support of this restrictive position, the Congregation referred to the articles of the Liturgy Constitution, Sacrosanctum Concilium 36 and 63. In restricting room for the vernacular, the position of the Congregation for Rites indirectly limited the role of the bishops' conferences. Many of the prerogatives belonging to the bishops, for example, the right to determine the extent of the use of the vernacular and to indicate adaptations judged to be opportune, were withdrawn or at least limited owing to the rigid position taken by the Congregation for Rites. That is why the Observations document of the Congregation for Rites provoked the same reaction in the Concilium that Article 9 of the Motu Proprio Sacram Liturgium had caused a few months earlier. Once again, the point of controversy was the question of the vernacular. The Concilium's response to the observations made by the Sacred Congregation of Rites argued for the original meaning of the conciliar text and therefore defended the authentic interpretation given to it by the instruction. The document examined the evolution of the conciliar texts in question, especially the background conciliar discussion of Sacrosanctum 54 and 63 before they were voted on. The meaning of the texts that were approved by a large majority was quite clear. Moreover, the incongruity of the position of the Congregation for Rites on the celebration of the sacraments and the vernacular was exposed, since the Council had voted for more flexibility, not the maintenance of the status quo. In addition to being a defense of the authentic meaning of the Constitution and of the Office's work, the response given by the Concilium was also a vindication of the rights of the bishops' conferences. The Council had solemnly authorized the rights of bishops' conferences to determine the extent of the use of the vernacular. Therefore, it fell to the Apostolic See simply to confirm the determination of the bishops' conferences regarding the extent of the use of the vernacular. This new approach to liturgical renewal was entirely foreign to the spirit of the Council of Trent. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that the congregation that had been instituted four hundred years earlier by the Council of Trent to safeguard a uniformity of practice in the celebration of the Roman Rite should argue against the right of bishops' conferences to make such determinations. The Congregation for Rites and the Concilium also had very different conceptions of how the Holy See was to lead the reform. The Congregation maintained that Rome was to be cautious in implementing the reform in order to avoid mistakes that would compromise its future. It was also of the opinion that partial reforms should be avoided, since these would tend to weary the faithful and the priests. It is clear that the congregation's position was essentially defensive. 
those in charge of the liturgical reform were to be on guard against potential dangers. This position was illustrated in the congregation's reticence to allow a freer hand in the use of the vernacular in the celebration of the sacraments. The concilium's position was completely the opposite. Not fear, but scholarly rigor and pastoral concern for the faithful's active participation were to guide the office charged with the reform. Foot-dragging in the areas of the reform that had already been approved would lead to mistrust of and disappointment with the Holy See, or even to accusations of betraying the Constitution and the sacred liturgy. Furthermore, the concept of a static reform similar to that instituted after the Council of Trent was considered unrealistic by the Concilium. Just as clergy and laity needed time to assimilate the other reforms of Vatican II, so their acceptance of the liturgical renewal would need to be gradual. Since the Concilium advocated a more decentralized approach to the reform, leaving significant aspects in its implementation to bishops' conferences, it was opposed by the Congregation for Rights, which wanted to maintain its monopoly over approving the details of the renewal mandated by the Second Vatican Council. The Concilium, however, did need the Congregation's power to officially approve the new liturgy. In its view, though, the Congregation's role should have been only to confirm what had been prepared by the Concilium and approved by the Pope. The instruction inter ecumenici marked the victory of the more open view of the implementation of the Vatican II liturgy advocated by the Concilium, in which the bishops' conferences would be associated with the responsibility of the Holy See. It also marked the end of the Tridentine mentality, which had considered the liturgy as an unchangeable reality reserved solely to the Congregation for Rites. It also marked an important change in the life of the Concilium itself, which then emerged as the principal office responsible for the liturgical reform, while the Congregation for Rites was relegated to a secondary role. The Congregation was practically forced to accept the Concilium's work, although the appearance of consensus between the two offices was maintained by means of joint meetings. These meetings, though, were not entirely foolproof. With its conservative mindset, the congregation would still be able to oppose or at least modify the concilium's texts at the last minute. Only in practice would it become clear if, with the instruction, the concilium had opened the door to reform fully or only halfway. a section taken from A Challenging Reform, which came out uh, under the name of Archbishop Piero Marini. And the whole book is like this. It is amazingly candid. And I wonder if the authors, whom I think are really the editors, understand just how damning this expose really is. I, I just don't think that they must. I think they really think they're ensuring up the now uh, 
I think, uh, what I consider passe ideas, which uh, all of them obviously have a great stake in. I mean, think about it. These people ate and slept and breathed these ideas for so long in their rarefied spheres of power and influence. But times have really changed and fewer and fewer people really want what they pushed then for so long and are still peddling now. In any event, this is a great book to to just read and, and uh, get mad at and, and savor and enjoy and be impressed about. Uh, it's really well put together. It's very well written, very clear. It's uh, fairly dense, but it moves along. Um, there are a lot of things to recommend in this book. And there are several reasons why the student of liturgy and uh, also I think just the astute observer of today's church would want to read the book that came out under Marini's name. Uh, first, the book points out that a major intention of the secretary of the concilium went way beyond liturgy. Uh, you know, Consider this, for example, uh, Archbishop... Annibali Bunini, way back then Father Bunini, had been an instructor at the Pontifical Lateran University. But because of his strange ideas, the Congregation for Rights had him removed from his position. And so Bunini had a bone to pick with the Congregation, and that had to be part of this dynamic, why he wanted to gut the Curia, especially the Congregation for Rights. So the intentions of the Secretary of Concilium, Bunini, went way beyond liturgy as well. In fact, the liturgy reform was a tool for Bunini's desire not just to gut the congregation for rights, but also to decentralize power away from the curia itself, and probably even away from the Roman pontiff, out into the local churches and conferences for bishops. This was why this is the reason behind the, these power struggles between the concilium and the congregation for rights these struggles over issues like vernacular liturgy the the battle the war was being fought over who got to approve the translations would it be the congregation or regional conferences and you can guess which side the concilium was on right this battle is, was fought out again and again and again over other issues, too, such as how priests might concelebrate together. I mean, who gets to approve how it's done? Who gets to approve how communion might be distributed under both kinds? You think about just that translation issue, that vernacular issue. Who gets to approve translations? Isn't that the same battle that's being fought out even today when the Holy See came out with new norms for translations of vernacular liturgy? men like uh, Bishop Donald W. Troutman, who was secretary of the bishop's uh, committee on uh, liturgy for so long in the United States, he had the idea, no, 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 we, we here in these conferences, we know better than a bunch of people in Rome how the liturgical language should sound here. We should have the right to do all this, not Rome. See, the battle is still being played out, and it's not just over liturgy, it's over power. Another point uh, 
to glean from this book is what brilliant tacticians and strategists Bunini and members of the Concilium were. They knew how to use curial procedure. They knew brilliantly how to get things done. And they were absolutely tireless, dedicated workers. You have to admire what they did. They moved at lightning speed because they knew they had to get the reform ball rolling so fast that it couldn't be stopped. Couldn't be stopped by anyone. And therefore, they knew, and this is something that Marini talks about in the book, they knew that they had to get as much done as they could while the Second Vatican Council was still in session because they had to use the council as a club against the Congregation for Rights, and probably, at least psychologically at least, even against Paul VI. See, they were doing everything in the name of the Council, and if they could go to the Council and the Secretariat of the Council and get them on the side, see, that was a huge weapon. Another fascinating point of the book is that it gives uh, us a sense of what these reformers thought enculturation was all about. Now, properly understood, enculturation is an absolutely necessary part of the church's life. The Lord gave the church a mandate to go forth to all nations and to preach the good news. And that means enfleshing our faith in people's lives. And so there is going to be a necessary cultural adaptation, uh, necessary cultural expression that inexorably grows up. It's necessary and it's unavoidable. You know, you think about how Pope Benedict wrote uh, for so many years about liturgy, about that organic approach to liturgy, that organic growth that slowly changed and shaped the liturgy for centuries rather than the artificial um, kind of synthetic way that it was made on desktops by the experts of the concilium. Now in this dynamic exchange between the church and the world, which is constantly going on, it's simultaneously going on, enculturation is fine, so long as what the church has to give has logical priority over what the world has to give. Now when this proper priority is in place, we have, for example, these magnificent fusions of, of church and culture, of, of culture and theology, uh, which give expression in various forms in, in different artistic periods, for example, like the Romanesque and the Gothic and the Baroque. Just take the Baroque for example, we have an Italian Baroque and a German Baroque and a Spanish Baroque. They are all different, but they're all Baroque and they're all part of the church's fabric. They're all church cultural expressions of a common belief and identity. That's what Catholic identity is all about. And it's fine. It can be expressed in many different cultural ways so long as it is Catholic. And so long as what the faith has to give and what the church has, has logical priority in this dynamic exchange contemporaneously going on between the church and the world. But if you reverse that and give the world priority, 
then enculturation becomes a disaster for the church and her people. And this is, I'm sure, part of what Paul VI meant when he spoke of the smoke of Satan entering into the church through some crack. There was some reversal of who had logical priority in this thing. This is part of the problem of the interpretation of, I think, all of the Council's documents. You think about the Council's document on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. Highly controversial, especially among some more traditional or conservative sectors of the Church. This is part and parcel of the problem with understanding the Church's teaching on religious liberty, for example. It's part of the problem uh, with church music today and how the vernacular was handled. It's part of our problem with art and architecture. When the world gets logical priority in the exchange, in this process of enculturation, the simultaneous two-way dynamic exchange, then the liturgy is going to devolve into entertainment or perhaps the worst kind of some sort of nationalistic expression or culturalism or a multiculturalism, even kind of a in-your-face multiculturalism, which can even be condescending in some, some manners of expression. As in, in my opinion, the case of this now infamous mass at National Stadium during the Holy Father's visit to the United States, that was the sort of mass many had hoped never to see again that we had we were done with a mass that had music uh, for example and certain expressions that harked back to the days when none other than archbishop piero marini was mc who uh, has his name on this book the challenging reform it was a certain style a kind of a vision and I think this stems from that formative period in the concilium that whole vision is shaped and that by an ecclesiological vision, too, his understanding of who the church is, an understanding that would bring the expression of the universal church's liturgy under the domination of the local mold. You see, the priority is given to the world rather than uh, the, the church in this dynamic enculturation exchange rather than permit the internal genius of the Roman rite to shape the local needs for liturgy, the other, other thing happens. You see, it gets reversed. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wind up with disaster sometimes in liturgies that are trying to be self-consciously inculturated. <laughs>
With that, I'm going to wrap this up. I've gone on for a long time now. Gosh, a lot of talking today. I'm glad I was able to recycle some of that stuff about Tertullian, uh, that very interesting reading. I hope you'll leave some feedback. You can call Father Z, call his voicemail. I have a Skype uh, address set up, WDTPRS. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra. And the phone numbers that are attached to that Skype voicemail. In the USA, you've got 651-314-4554. And in the UK, it's 020-8123-1545. You can also find those numbers on the entry on the WDTPR's blog for each of these podcasts. So thanks for your participation in the blog. You've made it wonderfully successful and a real joy for me. And I hope these podcasts are helpful for you. Please send feedback and let me know. And kindly pray for me as I will for you.